We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. So continuing Khalid Abu al-Fadl's book, um, Reasoning with God. Now we're on this paragraph that begins with the cultural impact. I can just start reading, so I'm gonna, you don't always have to feel like you're the first person reading. And we'll see if other people join us, inshallah. So the cultural impact of colonialism on Muslim societies was and continues to be immeasurable. In the 19th century, the Western educated intelligentsia played a critical role in the birth of the reform movement that sought to modernize Islamic law. In response to the transplantation of the European codes of law into the Muslim world, especially in the 1850s and 1860s, Muslim legal experts, most often trained in Western institutions, sought to reform Islamic law by making it more deterministic, uniform, and predictable. And we'll talk about what this means in a moment. In most cases, this amounted to a famous process of codification, the most famous of, of which was the Ottoman Majalla, also known as Majalla al-Ahkam al-Adliya, completed in 1877. But these efforts at reform meant challenging the epistemological foundations of the Islamic legal system and a radical reinvention of Islamic law from a common law-like system to a system tailored after the civil law. Uh, especially the Napoleonic Code of 1804. Very frequently, legal reformers unwittingly transformed Islamic law from a system of common laws united by shared communities of legal sources, methodological and analytical tools, technical linguistic practices, and a coherent system of authoritativeness and legitimacy to something that, other than being a compilation of deterministic commands, held little coherence and was strangely at odds with the system of law that had existed for well over a thousand years. Okay, so last time we spoke about how, how invasive and thorough colonialism had been on Muslim majority lands, for example, the Indian subcontinent. And here he's giving us a taste of how it played out in terms of, of Islamic law. So the first issue is the dominance, we talked about this before, or the esteem given to Western education and the Western forms of university, the Western forms of, of educational institution. And, and so the modern version of that would be the science-based academy. And what is the idea here is that the madrasa is answering the question, what does Allah want from me? Whereas the academy is answering the question, how does the university work? And so the madrasa is, in answering that question, it's teaching you knowledge with the assumption you're going to practice it. The academy, there's no, it's not relevant whether or not you're going to practice the knowledge that you're being given. Rather, it's saying, here's how the universe works. We find patterns in how everything works. And the nature of the patterns will dictate the field of inquiry. So physics uses one type of pattern, one type of patterns, chemistry uses another. Economics uses another. So economics is basically saying humans behave in certain patterns related to related to uh, matters of, of money. Psychology says humans uh, behave in a different set of patterns related to behavior. And so, so the dominance of these Western institutions or the esteem that came from Western institutions, which include the impact it has on you because people would go to Western educate Western institutions and come back dressed in Western clothing. And so it was as though they were becoming like the masters. And so 
So Deoband forms in this period and their specific mission is that uh, we're not even going to rely upon money. If Allah wants us to survive, we're going to survive. And we're not going to do it and take on any of these Western forms. So we're not going to use English. Aligar, in contrast, will use English. We are going to teach in Muslim languages, which they identified as Arabic, Urdu, and Farsi. And we're going to dress in Muslim dress, which is something to our means, right? And so that was their response to this intellectual slash cultural impact. And so, nevertheless, all these people that came with these with Western education started pushing for modernization. And keep in mind that more than likely, if you're getting Western education, you're probably socioeconomically part of the upper tier of society anyway. So you already have some amount of influence. And so one is European systems of law. So like in England, we have common law, English common law, and then France, we have Napoleonic code. Those regions that were under British rule started having, started importing things like English common law. Those regions like Egypt and in Syria that were under French rule started implementing Napoleonic code. And in their view, it was to modernize society, to make society more relevant. Rightly or wrongly, I mean, I think there are some arguments, it's easy to make arguments against, but I think it's also uh, easy to make arguments in favor of it for the simple reason that a fundamental question of the Muslim world is what has happened that we are now at the bottom and they're at the top. The Europeans that used to be the, the laughing stock of the world have now become the masters of the entire globe, right? And I think I mentioned last time um, uh, in the history, in studying it in terms of its impact on the Indian subcontinent, William Dalrymple, he, he writes a lot about this, his recent book, Anarchy. Uh, talks a lot about this, the formation of the East India Company as these British attempts to venture and monopolize business in, in India and such. And so, so the 1850s and 1860s is when this is taking place. Now, the author is probably not familiar with what's specifically going on in India at this time. This is also the period of the Sepoy Mutiny. Are you familiar with this? This, story, this event? Okay. This is an important event for like Daisy's to know. So, so, so the East India Company uh, is, is independent, but yet it has a military that is defending it, a military that is in part British mercenaries and then in part also Indian, indigenous Indian soldiers. And, and so imagine you have a population of British businessmen all across the Indian subcontinent and probably tenfold the size in terms of military defending them. Steadily taking over business, often unethically. Yeah. In any case, there's a, a, a brand or like a, what we call these, like a, a unit of this military, the sharpshooters that would have these rifles and you had to take, like the way you would load the rifles is you had a little pouch of grease. You had to bite it open and put the grease in in the pipe in the barrel and take like a, a hammer or something and push the grease all the way to the bottom then you put the bullet inside let the bullet go in and then you shoot yeah 
And so someone spread rumors that the grease was being made out of pig fat and beef fat. So it's literally offending all of the Muslims and Hindus, as well as the, the vegetarian Sikhs that are that are part of this. And 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 so that compels what becomes, uh, in the language of the Indians, the uprising of 1857. In the language of the British, it's the mutiny. And the sharpshooters there are called the sepoys. And and <clears throat> there's all kinds of theories in terms of what the real story is, whether that was just a, a rumor uh, or it was the real thing. And part of it is the question of what was the goal? You know, was it something actually launched by the British as an excuse for the actual British military to come in? Because that's exactly what happened is that the sharpshooters started an uprising that then led to a mass uprising across India, especially across the eastern end of India. And to shut down the uprising, the British sent in its navy and its military. The British version of the story is all these Indians were losing their minds. The Indian version of the story is that these British who already have a history of ultra-violence became even more violent. And then in this period after that, then we had these, these different Muslim madrasas forming, including Deoband and Aligar and Nadwat al-Ulama and such. But the point that Khalid al-Fadl is making is that in this era, which is sort of the beginning of the peak of colonization, is the, is the peak of European cultural domination. And one of the ways it gets manifested is, is that the locals are demanding Western-style reforms of the government. And part of it is trying to make everything much more democratic rather than imperial. That the people have a say in what's happening in society. And so the problem here is that Islamic law, the emphasis of Islamic law is not the code, it's not the, it's not the conclusion, it's the process of deliberation. So that which we call Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, Hanbali, those are schools of deliberation. They're schools of interpretation. So the example given is that the, in the Ottomans, they literally tried to codify Hanafi law, which is restricting it quite a bit. And so it was a very short project in the latter years of the decline of the Ottomans. I mean, to put it in perspective, the Ottomans are officially abolished in about 50 years, 5-0. Almost exactly 100 years ago. And so these are, in some ways, demands by the people to become relevant or to become much more democratic. On the other hand, they could be attempts of a declining giant empire to, you know, it's almost like their last gasps. India, it was a little bit different. There was an attempt about, uh, about I want to say, two centuries earlier under Aurangzeb Alamgir, which we, I think we talked about, um, called Fatwa Alamgiri, where they also tried to codify Hanafi law. But again, that's not how Islamic law works. Islamic law is all about the deliberation. So, so thus, by changing how the law works, you're changing the whole epistemological foundations of the legal system.
it's like you're breaking it and reforming it as opposed to reforming it. And by reforming it, meaning you're taking these, these tools and then making them relevant here, it's like you're just tearing it apart, keeping a lot of the words, but inventing a whole new system, which was actually European law in disguise. And that's why I even believe a lot of our gender norms uh, are actually just the product of colonization because they seem to strangely match Victorian England. And we talk about the example, these bizarre laws about, about, uh, about rape and Zina and all that stuff. Uh, and this is purely just theory. Uh, I think it's actually just European corruptions that have been sort of Islamified by using Islamic language. All of those, Beth. And so, so he's saying that very frequently legal reformers unwittingly transformed Islamic law from this whole thing to something that has little coherence and a little relation to what's been in place for a thousand years. And when you do that to the law, it means you've done that to one of the central institutions. So even with colonization gone, all that law is still there. And so commonly in our society, we speak of, we speak of colonization ending when, roughly? Any idea? Maybe in the late 30s, I'm guessing. Yeah, oh. a little bit later. Like so, so Pakistan forms 1947, India forms 1947. So right and, at that time. Yeah. And so, yeah, basically the establishment of the United Nations is in a way the end of colonization. And then the remaining countries that were colonized, uh, they get their official independence literally in the, like the next 20 years max. But in reality, uh, I don't think colonization is remotely finished. Uh, it's just changed its form from this cultural invasion to financial restructuring. Where the United Nations to be recognized, you're getting established with a bank and, and then you're, you're being given, you know, deals with the International Monetary Fund, which succeed more in imprisoning your, your nation. And I might have given this example last time, but I often give this example, is that Imran Khan gave a recent speech at the United Nations complaining that, you know, his predecessors took out these ridiculous loans. And he literally has to spend half of his annual budget just to pay the interest payments on those loans. And that's the plight of the overwhelming majority of the third world. And so that's where colonization is taking place right now, where everyone pretends like it's not. And so why is it that the Muslim world remains a big mess? It's because they can't even, their budget uh, can't even be sustained because half of it minimum has to go just to pay interest payments. What to think of capital? It's like if you're getting a house on a 30-year mortgage, you're spending at least the first 10 years just paying off uh, interest payments. And so that's what all these countries across Africa, Asia, and such are, are, are stuck in. Okay, so that's one big point to think about. And then this next big point is, is also interesting. Uh, if you want to read, then I'll just interrupt you randomly, or you'll read the whole paragraph and I'll go through and look. Okay, starting at perhaps? Yeah, Angela. Okay. Um, perhaps among the cultural and intellectual transformations that contributed a great deal to the retreat of Islamic law in the contemporary age was the birth of the myth of the closing of the doors of Ijtihad in the 19th century. 
It appears that this myth was invented by Orientalist scholars, many of whom are enlisted in the service of imperial colonial powers, and who, as part of carrying the white man's burden of civilizing backwards native cultures, sought to convince the native intelligentsia that Islamic law had ceased developing around a thousand years ago. According to the myth of closing the doors of Ijtihad in the fourth and 10th century, um, Muslim jurists decided that all the questions of the divine law have been now and forever answered, and therefore legal innovations or original determinations are not necessary and are no longer permitted. According to the myth, ever since the doors were closed, Muslim lawyers have practiced blind imitation of tahlid or tahlid. This unsupported historical claim was frequently exploited in the context of justifying the replacement of Islamic law with transplanted Western law, and also in restricting the jurisdiction of Sharia courts to the fields of family and personal law. Although Orientalist scholars might have invented and exploited this myth, the fact remained that Muslim intellectuals from all over the Muslim world accepted this fiction as a settled historical fact and constructed reform agendas and stratagems on the assumption that the reopening of the proverbial doors of ijtihad was a talismanic solution to all the challenges and woes of Islamic law in the modern age. Okay, good. So, so have you ever heard this term that the doors of ijtihad have been closed? You'll hear it periodically. But um, so, so I'm sorry. It's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> so, so ijtihad first, the word itself, I always find fascinating because it means to do jihad really hard. And so jihad is to be on the battlefield. Ijtihad is scholarship. And so the idea is that scholarship is much more difficult than that. So there is this notion that the doors of Ishtahad has been have been closed. And just like he described, it's the belief that all knowledge has been figured out. Mm-hmm. Wherever the idea came from, you know, he's saying it came from Orientalist scholars. So let's talk about what is an Orientalist. An Orientalist scholar is, is a scholar of Muslim lands from a Western university. So just like we said, you know, if I'm going to a madrasa, if I'm becoming a scholar through the madrasa, mm-hmm. then I'm learning how to practice and live and think the deen. Mm-hmm. If I'm becoming a scholar of Islam through the Western Academy, there's no expectation that I'm actually practicing Islam and it might even be mm-hmm. frowned upon for, you know, the theories of bias and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And in and so Edward Said, this is this is uh, where he became really popular, and the whole idea of post-colonial studies gets basically traced back to him. He is saying he's calling Orientalism uh, a a meeting between the academy and the government as part of the project of imperialism. The idea was basically that all right, if you learn the language of a population and you learn their history, then that's all you need to know. So for the Near East, if you learn formal Arabic and learn the whole history in terms of the Abbasids and the Mongols and the Umayyads and the Fatimids, then you learned all you, all you need to know, which is absurd because that gives you absolutely zero knowledge of what's happening on the street. Okay. And so you'll have famous people like Bernard Lewis, we mentioned last week, 
who, who was like one of the biggest of all the Orientalist scholars, who when we were invading Iraq in 2003, he literally said that the Iraqis are going to open their arms, you know, welcoming us to, 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 to take over, which did not happen. It was not even remotely close to reality. And so these were people who were part of the imperialist project. And it was literally a, an actual collaboration. So if you go to the elite universities, you'll find departments that are called area studies departments, Near Eastern languages and civilizations, South Asian languages and civilizations, Slavic languages and civilizations. So you'll see that at Harvard, you see that at Yale, you see that at University of Chicago. And those were often government funded. And so, for example, at U of C, they have the Center for Middle Eastern Studies that's government funded. Yeah. And, and, and so I had classmates when I was in grad school where, you know, the FBI, CIA would come to recruit. And I'm thinking of all these classmates, all these guys know is about like the Abbasid Empire, which is, you know, from 800 years ago. What do these guys know? And they're going to be working for the CIA uh, studying Muslim lands. So... <clears throat> It was classic uh, arrogant or um, imperialism through an academic lens. And part of the notion of imperialism is that it's the white man's burden to civilize all these backwards people. Now, to be fair, that's what most imperialism is anyway. You know, a lot of imperialism uh, on the ground is exploitation of someone else's resources. But in terms of the imagination of the imperialists, it's civilizing everybody. And so the British comes along, you know, and what do they do in, in India? They set up this huge system of railroads. What do they do in Egypt? They set up a huge system of railroads. What do they try to do in Saudi Arabia? Set up a railroad. And, and so they're doing things <laughs> that are part of the process of what they regard as civilizing. But part of the problem is that they're looking at the natives as backwards and savage. And have you ever heard of the term model minority? This has been a term that's been floating around a lot in the last couple of years. Basically saying, you know, look at all these people who have problems immigrating. Look at the East Asians and the South Asians. They're model minorities. And, and what is it saying? It's saying everybody can immigrate here. America's meritocracy. And so if you work really hard, you can succeed. And a couple of things that are being left out. Number one is that America is a meritocracy if you're already coming in with a degree. If you're coming in in poverty, you are still probably going to remain in poverty. And just finding here's a person who came poor and now they're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or that person, you know, people use that as mythology to say, look, anybody can accomplish this here. And so what's part of the whole model minority myth is it's used to attack everybody else, like Latinos, like African-Americans, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also saying that the Asians did a good job of self-domesticating. Like America didn't have to do anything. They came in, they domesticated themselves, you know, from the savage, dirty, smelly people that they have back home that smell like curry and all that stuff. That's part of my model minority, and it fits in with this whole idea of the white man's burden to, to civilize the whole world. Okay. Uh, and so, oh, by the way, do you know what we mean when we see dates like this, 4th, 10th century? So the first is Islamic calendar. Oh, okay. And the second is our calendar, our common calendar. 
So for example, we would say 1442, 2021, mm -hmm. small point. So if we actually looked at Islamic law in the madrasas in India, the doors never close. There's been deliberation going on nonstop, you know, answering further and further and further questions. But there is an important point that a lot of the training that a scholar receives is not so much in the process of Islamic law as much as it is looking in old books to find answers from 400 years ago to today's questions. And so this is a good term to know, taklid, which is commonly translated as uh, blind faith. It's usually translated that way. Literally, etymologically means it's putting a yoke around your neck and you're, you're being pulled along. And, and so the idea here is that taklid is that you're following a school of law effectively blindly. And you're not going through any process of deliberation to really find answers. So, so to help understand this, two terms, one is fiqh and the other is usul al-fiqh. Both of those refer to trying to understand the sharia. And fiqh is usually just looking for what are the simple answers to all these questions. So you have a question about such and such in terms of marriage life, divorce life, birth, death, etc. You know, financial transactions. Here's a book that's 400 years old. Let's see what we can find there. Oh, here's your answer. Usul al-fiqh. So that's fiqh. Usul is what you're commonly doing in fiqh. Usul al-fiqh is when you're saying basically, okay, what are the primary sources saying in any capacity related to your question? What are the methods of interpretation we have that we can apply? And let's go through that deliberation to find an answer for you. And so the common alim is maybe trained in fiqh, but is usually not trained in usul al-fiqh. So when you go to the common alim graduating from a madrasa, they'll give you an answer from a book that's 400 years old, which might be the exact wrong answer because they're not using any actual methodology. And so that is a problem in some places. You know, so that is the problem of the common madrasa grad. And, and one of the issues is that we talked about last time and multiple times that often it's like the dumbest kids that go to madrasa. And so the aptitude of the madrasa student has been decreasing and there's no sign of, of that changing anytime soon. And then on top of that, the funding for madrasas is nothing compared to the funding of a Western Academy, which means the resources that they have are much fewer. So the standards are gonna be much lower. And, and so you're being taught the rudiments. And if you were to, to look at, you know, a published madrasa textbook versus a published textbook from let's say UIC, University of Illinois, Chicago, I mean, there's no comparison in terms of quality. So, so there is that further problem. Let me see if there's anything else that I want to focus on here. Although Oriental scholars might have invented and exploited this myth, the fact remains that Muslim intellectuals from all over the world, the Muslim world accepted this fiction as a settled historical fact. Yeah, and there's a number of myths that seem to dominate Muslim, Muslim intellectual thinking. 
So one is that Islamic law has been closed and has had no development for the last thousand years. Another is that Imam al-Ghazali destroyed all thought. So Imam al-Ghazali, who's from the 1100s, there is a belief that he basically destroyed all Islamic philosophical thinking. And you will hear that come up periodically from Muslim intellectuals, and that has zero basis in fact. What he did, however, do is attack idea, idea systems that seem to not provide very much worldly benefit, that were nothing but speculation. So then what you will find is from other Muslim intellectuals is that they will parade around the world with the word ishtihad as this miracle solution to all the problems of the Muslim world. If only we develop scholarship, all our problems will be solved. And it's fascinating that Khalid Abu al-Fadl is even speaking, using such language to, to, to attack that uh, outlook because he himself is a scholar, he's in academics. And all of us academics, we usually say the problem is in, is in education, you have to change education. But, but I think the point he's making is that it's a multi-pronged problem. Education is one element of it. Economic re restructuring is another element of it. Can I ask you a quick question? Please. Um, are, do you think any of the countries are putting enough resources and in, in, intelligence, I guess, into their madrasas? Uh, if you and I had this conversation 20 years ago, I would have mm -hmm. said Turkey. Mm -hmm. uh, but Turkey, uh, over the past decade, has been going through this massive witch hunt of, uh, of followers of Fatullah Gulen, many of whom are journalists and many of whom are college professors. And either they're sitting in jail right now or they've escaped to places like the United States. So we have a large population of Gulen followers in Chicago who are refugees or their family members that are sitting in jail back home. You know, I had a grad student who came to me like in tears because he had just found out through a relative back home that he's on a hit list, not in the sense that he's going to get assassinated, but he was on a government scholarship that has been immediately erased. And if he were to come back, to Turkey, he would be arrested immediately. And he himself was not a Gulen follower, but he was close to a lot of Gulen followers, you know? So I think Turkey was doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, so Ursula, you were saying something? Yeah. The, word, the term Gulen, what, so is that a religious student oh, okay. or that student of So Fethullah Gulen is, is a, is a prominent thinker here. Let me, let me pull up a photo. G-U-L-E-N. Um, I mean, he basically looks like every other old Turkish guy, uh, but mm -hmm. here, let me, and I'll give you a, a two second intro to him. But first let's, I'd like to, with my undergrads, I'd like to show photos. Is he so in Pennsylvania can, or where is yeah. he? He's somewhere in the East, right? Yeah, he's somewhere like in Pennsylvania, somewhere like in suburban or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he looks like every other, you know, 80 year old Turkish guy, you know, right down to the mustache and everything. And so, so he is uh, uh, a prominent thinker 
uh, a lot of his ideas are traced back to another scholar who died in the 60s, um, whose name is Bedi Uzzaman Said Nursi. So here's, here's photos of, of Nursi right here. Big, prominent writer who's written thousands upon thousands of pages. And so a lot of Gulen's ideas are coming from, from Nursi and a lot of the followers of Gulen are hardcore students of, of Nursi. I don't know that there's any other connection except for like an intellectual connection between Gulen and Nursi. So there are a lot of people who've dedicated themselves to the ideas of Fethullah Gulen. So if you were to ever hear about the Hizmet movement, which is, so what is the Hizmet movement? And, and the address is literally the Gulen movement. These are people who've dedicated themselves to the ideas of Fethullah Gulen. And they opened up numerous schools across Turkey and numerous schools across the world, usually in the poorest cities, poorest places all over the world. And to put it in perspective, I was privileged to go on a trip to Turkey, uh, touring some of their places. And we asked him, how many schools have you opened up? And in some short period of time, I think he said something like five years, they opened up 1900 schools all across the world. You know, again, in the poorest places in the world. And part of their philosophy was that they train in math and sciences at the highest level they can. Uh, they also train you in morality. So they're not officially Muslim schools but they are training you in character and they have a very close relationship between teachers and students. And so there's a couple of their schools in Chicago. One is called the Chicago Math and Science Academy. Another one's uh, in Mount Prospect and I forgot its name. And, and they have a number of schools throughout the United States. Mm -hmm. And, but what happened in the last decade is that as Erdogan started consolidating power he started seeing the Gulenists as a threat. And so you might remember in 2016, there was a coup attempt in Turkey. It was blamed on the Gulen people. And so then I asked some people who like are, are critics and, and political science people, and they said, uh, it's doubtful that Gulen himself launched it, but it's not doubtful that people who are sympathetic to Gulen, that might be more you know, on the underground that might've been part of it but it was a completely botched uh, coup, but that was used to, as an excuse to then launch a witch, a witch hunt all over Turkey of Gulen supporters. A Gulen is basically teaching a school that teaches you independent thought. So the Gulen himself, most of his, his, his teachings are focused on service. Okay. And, and, and pushing people to get educated. So it's not as much that it's teaching independent thought. It's, it's, people who are super religious and, and, and focusing very much on the importance of education and the combination of education and service. Mm -hmm. oh. and, and in Chicago, there was an organization called the Niagara Foundation, which used to get a lot of funding from Turkish business people. And they used to be very active. And Houston also had, uh, used to have at least a big branch of, of Gulen supporters. I don't know what their mm -hmm. status is. Have you heard of TCF? What does it stand for? Um, they establish schools across, um, especially across Pakistan. Oh, I think so, that's the Citizens I'm, Foundation. Yeah, yes. that's, a that's a different organization. Yeah, that's uh, Daniel Nuran. Are they similar in terms of 
educating or is it uh, less Islamic, more just Western math and science? Uh, I think TCF is more focused specifically on the production of school in, in the villages of, of Pakistan, you know, okay. especially with focus on, on getting daughters to go to school. Uh, uh, the Gulen movement is, uh, has like their own curriculum uh, uh, and um, and then it does try to make things as very, very indigenous in the different countries. So the Philippines curriculum will be different than the Pakistani curriculum, uh, different than the Turkish curriculum, but the core is super high levels of math and science and morality training, as well as uh, close relationships between teacher and student. So they do have a whole philosophy of, of uh, education. But so, so back to your, to, to your question, Amanath, that uh, prior to all that stuff happening, I would have said that, yeah, Turkey invests a lot in its education, but Turkey seems to be evolving more into a dictatorship, you know, and it's sort of like shifted. So they're producing things like Ertegrel that everybody watches and thinks it's amazing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and it almost seems like the, the president of Turkey is trying to turn... Um, Turkey into like a new Ottoman uh, empire. He started off so great though, didn't he? Yeah. Which is yeah. unbelievable, yeah. Yeah, and uh, another country in recent times that, that was doing very well was Malaysia. Yeah, that's right. And, and um, I mean, Malaysia still has a lot of development going on, still has uh, a lot of, of Muslim funding and education. Um, mm -hmm. But it used to be looked at almost as like the 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 golden, like the the golden chalice of the Muslim world, like all the wonderful things that were developing there. But then I think a lot of corruption started taking over. You know. And I mean that's the nature of power, right? You know, so power is a very difficult thing to sustain without get it falling into corruption. I um maybe I should talk about this only after you stop the recording, yeah, but I sure. got in trouble. <laughs> okay, then hold it's on fine. a second. Um, I mean, so so <laughs> these are a couple of big points to take from today. One, we talked uh, a little bit further about about the legacy of colonization in terms of of Muslim involvement in changing law and totally restructuring law. And the other was is this big myth of the closing of the doors of of ishtihad, which I think are two big concepts mm -hmm. that are good to good to know. So we'll stop right there, and then 